This is Dangerous Vision, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Going blind is incredibly hard, Mm -hmm. I think. Being blind isn't necessarily. In this week's Dangerous Vision, part two of the interview with Randy Pierce. When I first went blind, I thought I was never going to do anything fun or meaningful again. And now I'm doing whatever I want. Hiking is sort of analogous to lots of things, right? Reaching your peak potential. How do we become the best we can be? I actually know what your best story is. So you've given us a great sense of of who you are and why you do what you do. Let's do a little what and where, and then we can get into how. So the what and where, I mean, is tell us about some of your climbing accomplishments. I've read about doing all the New Hampshire peaks and so forth, but uh, fill us in on some of the some of the things you've done that are you know sort of uh, that you're the proudest of, or that you just think are the the most interesting, or or that people sure. find remarkable, even if you yourself think that anyone could do it, or or whatever. Uh, sure. You know, in the in the hiking world, you know, I think Kilimanjaro is probably the tallest, so that stands out. It's the mm-hmm. tallest standalone in the world. That's over in uh, Tanzania. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, I went to uh, just to Peru, and we did Machu Picchu, which a lot of people do. But then we took five days, and we went back country around this massive, beautiful mountain that's even bigger than Kilimanjaro called Asangate, mm-hmm. and we came out on the backside to look at this mountain called Vinacunca which is Rainbow Mountain. And it's, it's become very popular just about the year that we were there. It started to, to become known. But we got to be the only group up there enjoying it because we went this remote location through the Andes to get there instead of this new trail they were going to blaze that was going to be a car ride out to a day hike. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was an amazing trip, right? Backcountry in the Andes is pretty, pretty special. You know, I've, I've hiked the Grand Canyon, which would be pretty unremarkable, but it had, it had a, a remarkable aspect for me, which is mm-hmm. that I get out there and our trails in New England are twisty, rocky, rooty. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm getting to ask you about that soon because I've tried to do some hiking in New England and I'm not totally blind and I struggle. So, so, uh, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So go, go on about the Grand Canyon. So you get to the West, the Rockies and the Grand Canyon, it's smoother trails. That doesn't mean there aren't hard parts, but mm-hmm. the trails and the footing is generally considerably smoother. So my pace was quicker and I was passing people on the Grand Canyon with my guide dog. And, you know, there's some really fun moments with people saying, Hey, you're not allowed to have a dog out here. And I'm wow. like, Oh, you know, I'm totally blind. This is my service dog. And people are like, you're not blind. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some humor about, you know, what are we going to do? Play a pokey eye game here to, to prove I'm blind. But, yeah. the, yeah, exactly. but what was powerful <laughs> for me was a different epiphany. It was that mm-hmm. I didn't envision. Remember when I first went blind, I thought I was never going to do anything fun or meaningful again. And, now I'm doing whatever I want, and so much so that I'd forgotten how much I had learned. And I think we all do that in our lives. We, we forget how far we've come, how much we've done. And so our next task, we're so daunted by it. And the only thing daunting about it is that it's mm-hmm. the next one. And that's how I feel about every peak right, and every challenge is that it should just be, if we've done all these others, of course we're going to do this next one. And, and that's – so what's my – What's my favorite mountain climbing? The, the next one. The next one is really. Good I, I was just one. thinking of one of my uh, one of my favorite. I, I love to read uh, stories about climbing in the mountains, even though you know I myself don't uh, don't partake. Um, and um, 
and one of the one of the best things I read about it was by um, uh, the author Michael Crichton, who was when I was a, when I was young, he was one of my favorite writers. You know, I read the book The Andromeda Strain over and over, and of course later when I was an adult, he wrote uh, Jurassic Park, which is so entertaining and so forth. And he wrote this um, uh, book of autobiographical stories, which are which were uh, very very interesting. And uh, one of them talks about going hiking uh, in the in the uh, in the Himalayas, and I I, I think this the story in question I think he was climbing. I can't remember if it was Annapurna or Cake Two or whatever, one of the one of the really big mountains there. And uh and he's um uh and so he's climbing the mountain and of course he's you know he's totally exhausted. They're they're there for the rest break and he just you know wants to have his tea and everything. He's so tired. And the uh uh the bearer who's climbing with him, you know, sort of pulls him over towards the edge and points out and says, the Kali Gandaki Gorge, right? And the bear doesn't speak much English, you know, and, and Crichton's like, yeah, 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 whatever, mountains. There's mountains everywhere. Yeah, it's all very pretty. And the guy's like, no, no, no. The Kali Gandaki Gorge, right? And and uh Crichton just doesn't pay any attention. Anyway, when when Crichton gets down, he like you know says something to somebody about it, and is like, "Oh yeah, the Kaligandaki Gorge is the largest canyon in the world. It's like twenty times larger than the Grand Canyon, right?" And of course, what's so fascinating about it is that I mean, of course, partly because he's tired and unfocused, but mostly because like it's just like kind of so big you can't see it at all in a way. <laughs> you know, it just sort of seems like there's there's mountains everywhere, and um, I don't know. So so it just made me you talking made me think about it because of the thing that so much of most people's um, if you ask them why they climb mountains, they're going to talk about views and sights. And, uh, and obviously that's something that, uh, you don't get out of it. So tell us about the best parts of climbing for somebody who doesn't get to see the gorgeous vistas. So first off, who says I don't get to see them? Um, not me, not me. Right? I, did I, I say that? No, do. I was quoting other people yeah. who aren't here. <laughs> A lot of people um, are saying stuff. So I absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely either see these views or I give these views to people, depending on which part, who's guiding, who's giving the guiding, right? I use the eyes of other people and their descriptive prowess to share what they see with mm -hmm. their eyes. And I share what I've learned going into the story as well. So on a cloudy day, I'll sometimes be the one who's telling people what's all around us because I've taken the time to learn through my raised release maps, through having read and learned about the journey that we're going to be on and the, the mountain mm -hmm. that we're going to be on. So there are sites that I'm going to take from this, and I've probably climbed the peaks that I'm climbing several times before, and I can share, you know, hey, when I was here, you know, three months ago with this group, here's what I learned. Here's what somebody pointed out, right? So I've got an amalgamation of the vision of all the people I've ever climbed with, right? It's the difference mm -hmm. of sight and vision, really, on that yeah. front, right? So that's one of the things, but that's a small part. I wrote a blog post called Sense of the Summit, which is... All of the other senses, you know, people often say, oh, do all, your, do all your other senses get better? And the answer is no, they don't. We learn how to pay attention to them more. Mm -hmm. And anybody can do that. Just stop. That's about mindfulness, right? Stop and close down one sense to focus mm -hmm. in on another. And you'll get all the treats it has to give. And I do that with my friends all the time. I'll, I'll say, stop, close your eyes. Mm -hmm. What do you notice? Is it the feel because we've just changed a temperate zone? And the gorge is bringing us cool air as, as, that has changed it? Is it the smell that's changed because the forest has actually changed what type of trees mm -hmm. that are surrounding us or is about to? Or is it the sounds where there's three different types of wind patterns going on at the same time in the three different elevations where we're kind of splitting at this juncture in a trail and it's like a symphony of sound? Or is it the difference of a sound on a maple tree down below and an oak tree up above? Right. I mean, those things are different if you learn to start differentiating them. 
So there's things all around that I can share and that I can still learn because I certainly don't know all of those. And those aren't going to happen in my backyard. And then the thing that I like most about it is that in any experience, when you go through these with people, you're all going to change and grow. And when you do that together, if it's the right experience, that is a marvel because people, you know, we're so complex. We've got a lot that's similar. We've got some things that are different. And when we learn how to to work and share in the right ways, we share that experience in different and and myriad and advanced ways that let us all benefit from each other's part of that experience, including our own personal journeys of growth. So, So let's dig into the how for a sec. How do you eat an elephant, right? When you want to solve a problem, you start out by finding somebody who already solved it. I just, I put the toothpaste on my finger and then rub my finger on the brush. I've got no shame. So let's dig into the how for a sec. Um, I, it's, it's, I just can't believe you guys do it. Okay. I mean, if I try to go hiking, like there's just constantly going to be places where you have to step from one rock to another. And there's a place in between. If you put your foot wrong, you're just going to twist an ankle. And I, um, and as you say, there's roots sticking up. There's just a million things, uh, that can mess you up. There's little streams to cross. Um, tell, tell us about how, how it's possible to do it. Uh, you know, because as I say, even being able to see a little bit, uh, you know, frankly, even when I could see a medium amount, I found it ridiculously difficult. And admittedly, I'm sure you're much more athletic than I am and so forth. But even so, I just kind of feel like without being able to see is, is the point that people are, are telling you where to place yeah. each step. Is your guide dog the key that the dog is, is finding you the smooth part of the path? Uh, or is this just been the result of, you know, sort of 10,000 hours of deliberate practice or, or help us understand? Sure. How do you eat an elephant, right? <laughs> one, one bite at a time. Exactly. All right. You don't you don't start out in this hike and do all of those challenges right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna piecemeal it. And amusingly enough, my my primary technique has changed. The the first thing I, I did is like when you want to solve a problem, you start out by finding somebody who already solved it. And mm-hmm. you know I, I always give a fun example of that in the blindness world is my first problem ever when I lost my last bit of sight was brushing my teeth. Toothpaste. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. And I was out of guide school and, you know, it was a, uh, one of the people out there that, I, 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 so I'll, I'll tell you my answer and you can tell me if it's, I sure. just, I put the toothpaste on my finger and yeah. then rub my finger on the brush. I've got no shame. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> I, uh, I didn't achieve that my first time. I instead <laughs> tried to put it on my brush and, and it went a lot more places than I went. And I asked right. somebody out there, I was starting to think all the ways I could solve this problem, but I asked somebody who was blind their whole life. I said, how do you handle it? And he said, it's easy. I put the toothpaste, which is mine, I put it up against my lips and I squeeze it into my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I can tell how much I'm squeezing. I can feel it in my mouth. I stop yeah. squeezing when I get enough and I brush from there. Mm-hmm. It's already where I want to use it. You don't yeah. even have to get your finger toothpaste. Good good point. That's true. <laughs> but the key is somebody who already solved it. So when I wanted to hike, I talked to Eric about how he mm-hmm. did it. And when Eric hikes, he has a person who wears Skylar's, his guide, actually, his primary guide, wears a bear bell on his left shoulder and on his yeah. right hip. And he listens to them as they walk and he uses two trekking poles and he's tapping out the ground with his feet and he's listening to the sound of the person ahead of him. And that person's also giving him instructions and they've developed teamwork about leaning to the right to talk versus left to talk, tells him which way to, to be managing a trail. And that works really great for Eric. And Eric does a lot of things, but it didn't work good for me. Right away, I had a problem. Eric is about six inches shorter than me mm-hmm. and I kept hitting branches. Ah. 
So right away, I was like, hey, this already isn't working. That's why I hike with my guide dog, right? The Bill Irwin approach, although I didn't know Bill Irwin at the time um, because they're more naturally trained. I could have tried to find taller guides, but I'm six foot four. Yeah. So great. Now try to find six foot four guides. want to go hike on my schedule where I want to hike. <laughs> right. So you just you find the solutions that work for you and then you start on so, smaller ones. So quick one on the dog. I was wondering, are dogs well adapted to high altitudes? Obviously, New Hampshire is one thing, but when you're talking about Kilimanjaro, I, w- I would worry, you know, obviously we know that human physiology doesn't always uh, work as well as we'd like it to with those altitudes. Are, are dogs all good for that? Talked to the vets at guide schools and said that very same worry. And we, what we were worried about is we wouldn't know the signs. And so my guide mm-hmm. dogs don't do high elevation with me. Hape and haste and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Know? They're too valuable. I wouldn't put them at that risk, right? I care about them too much. There's too much invested, yep. so they don't get to go to high elevation. If I'm over 15,000 feet, my, my guide dogs are not with me. I see. Up I see. to 12, pretty comfortable. That middle ground, how long am I there? You know, And mm-hmm. it's a conversation with, the, with a vet about it each time, right? So, so, so tell me about the groups you go. So, so the point is you're there with the dog, but are you, you are, are, do you always hike with sighted people or do you go hike, climb a mountain alone with your dog? So I never hike alone with my dog, I, I, right? I've done stretches alone where there's somebody mm-hmm. behind me on a trail somewhere or maybe somebody ahead of me, but I, and I didn't really do that. There are solo hikers and there's, anytime you do this, you're managing risk. It's all about risk mm-hmm. manipulation, right? What's yeah. safe in this world? Everything has some level of risk. Most dangerous thing most of us do any day is get in a car and mm-hmm. you manage that risk, right? Get in a car with a good driver who's not texting or tweeting or Snapchatting or whatever. Sure. You know, th- there's all sorts of risk manipulation that goes on. And hopefully we do that. And the similar hiking, you know, there's a lot of great hikers who take one too many choices the wrong way. And yeah. for me, there's no reason to, because if you remember part of the experience was how a team comes together and grows together. So Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I, I don't choose. Plus, how am I going to get to the trailhead, right? There's there's ways, but the yeah. easiest way, I have a lot of friends now who like to hike. I've built a yeah. big community around it. So, yeah. Good. So the answer is I'm, I'm almost always with people. In the winter, I can do longer stretches without people because the trail is tactilely more obvious. You, know, you know when you step off trail. Right. Very, uh, very interesting. And so, um, and so do you hike with blind people? I have, um, and totally comfortable. In fact, I I recently did a presentation to a vision weekend where that's one of their bigger questions. You know, how, how can we learn to hike with you? How can we learn? Yeah. I was literally going to ask you, like, if any of our listeners heard this and were like, gosh, you know, if I could hike with him, maybe that could get me started on a path I'd want to be on or whatever. I wondered if you ran, you know, kind of hikes where other, other blind people could join, presumably with at least one sighted person along, but still. Right. So I have not run one of those as a, as an official entity. And the biggest reason is probably liability, right? To to say, Hey, I'm going to bring everybody together and I'm going to train you how to hike blind. Yeah. I'm happy to share with the things I do. I'm happy to share the trails and a lot of hikers will do what they call group meetups. Here's where we're going to go. And, but what I'd recommend is I'm happy to be there. I'm happy Mm -hmm. to work with people to, to show them the techniques that I'm able to use. Right. But to suggest that I have all the answers, people are too many. I don't know what skills they bring to it, Mm -hmm. but I'm happy to share what I know about it and to, to lend my opinions different than my advice, perhaps. (laughs) So, that's uh, it's uh, it's just it's just so um, so remarkable to me. So what's what's next? What's the what what are the, what are some of the things you have planned uh, looking ahead in uh, in twenty nineteen? 
So a lot of things because hiking has led to a lot of other things, right? Tough mutters, running marathons. Um, so I think the biggest goal, if you're, if you're speaking in the, in the hiking world, then it's just training up because 2020 will be a marquee year for us. And okay. so we're trying to pick what is an epic enough hike to hit our signature year, to hit the year 2020. Ooh. I see your point. So, so do you have some candidates, or you don't want to talk about it till you pick one? Or um, no, I'm happy to talk about them. We have not picked one. What are you thinking? Um, a lot of our team is is excited about a trip to Bhutan. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of our trip uh, is excited about a trip to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, location based, that hasn't picked specific mountains. Bhutan would put us in the Himalayas. Yeah. I um, you know, I have no interest in Everest and uh-huh. risk management. Right, you can do nothing wrong and still be at risk of losing your life. I love my life. Cost. It's, you know, it's over 40 grand just to make the attempt. I want to put 40 grand towards good charity uses. Right. Uh, and you probably heard those stories this, this season of, of the, you know, people standing, waiting while other people were taking selfies on top and then the, the, they're running out of oxygen or, or what have you. And just, you know, horrible situations because, you know, the, 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 like the good news is the world economy has grown over the decades. And so there's more and more people who can afford $40,000. But of course the, the, the trade-off of that is now you have all these people who want to summit. Yeah. Uh, the famous peaks, and uh, it's it's uh, very. It sounds like a very challenging situation for them Absolutely. to manage. Absolutely. So that's that's not my goal, right? I don't have to be the highest, and, and right. Eric's already done that to to make a nice statement about ability yeah. awareness. Yeah, I think it's great that that some that one blind person did it. That is, it's yeah. truly awesome. You know, thing that that was done. But that's right. We don't we don't all have to do it. Right. For me, it's <laughs> it's about what's what's going to be a quality experience, and that's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Right, so we've hit South America and and had a great experience. We've been to Africa, so we do want it to be a different continent. That's our only uh, only. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Yeah, that's uh, that's really exciting. And then and then uh, so wait, so so well, I, I have to ask real quick. So do you still have balance issues? Is the point that you've been able to kind of take care of those balances or the point is you're running a marathon and you are having balance issues the whole time, but you just fight through it? You are correct and, and pretty astute. I have, se- I have severe balance issues. And my mm-hmm. in 2012, I actually lost the sensation below my knees. So I have peripheral okay. neuropathy. I don't feel my feet and I don't feel my lower legs. Uh-huh. Which makes the hiking and the running a little more challenging, but yeah, you, you find ways to work through. It's kind of like dangerous, right? Because if you you could have injuries and not realize it. Oh, absolutely. So you know, fortunately, I have a teammate. My my wife does check for injuries and is willing mm-hmm. to work with me on these things. Not always happy because my my feet after a hike or a run cannot be the prettiest sight at times. <laughs> uh, but you know, those are the those are the trade offs we make to try to do what we want, and you know. I think that there's a balance, right? What is the real risk? And honestly, most of my injuries to my feet come from walking around my house when I get sloppy and bang it into something, right? Right, right, exactly. It's when we're not, it's when we're doing the easy stuff that we stop paying attention and do something silly. Correct. Hypervigilant out in the mountains, I'm in pretty good shape. Mm Mm-hmm. The um, but uh, wow, that's amazing. So you're run, running marathons while while constant not feeling your feet and constantly feeling uh, uh, out of balance. That's really uh, that's astonishing. So what else? Um, yeah. So what else? What else is is on the agenda heading into 2020? So I released my first book this year, and I've mm-hmm. been been trying to promote that a little bit. And this on its one year anniversary, we're going to try to to advance it to a little bit more because honestly, the first round of book tours was about book tours. The next round is 
probably try to push the internet presence a little more. But it's been yeah. So t- tell everybody a little about the book so they can go buy it. So it's called See You at or the Summit. Or frankly, they'll just download it off of Bookshare and not pay you a dime. But still, it's good. <laughs> well, they they go. You know, honestly, I I'm more I'm happy to get the message out there. We we donate the proceeds yeah. to our charity anyhow. So we're that's our that's our notion for it. We have put it out on Audible. It is out there in ebook. We kind of selected every customer service option for people, right? So they, they interchange between them if you take any of the options that are there. Um, but it's called See You at the Summit, my, my blind journey from the depths of loss to the heights of achievement. And sight mm-hmm. is not my biggest loss in this journey by far, mm-hmm. uh, though most people probably would suspect it. So yeah, uh, it's just my life story. A lot of people say, how, how did you get the perspective you did? How did you reach the points you've reached and what's involved? Yeah. So that's yeah. that's it in a nutshell. Uh, uplifting book, but don't read it in public if uh, if you're somebody who loves your dogs and is <laughs> uh, is prone to maybe catching a little emotion because it is an emotional journey of of positive and some downsides. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really it's really impressive. Well, listen, I have a set of questions I like to uh, ask ask people towards uh, the the end of the podcast. Um, and uh, the first one is I like to ask people. Obviously, I, I ask people for a book recommendation. Obviously, your book is is the first book recommendation. But I like <laughs> to ask people too for a book recommendation that, especially maybe one unrelated to blindness or anything about that. I don't want this podcast to only be about blindness. I want it to be about our lives and who we are. And blindness is a part of that, of course. But it's not the whole part. You know, for for many years, I I couldn't read books. Fortunately, be, because of my eyesight, there were audio books, but I found them slow and frustrating. Now, fortunately, during that time became possible to, um, you know, get just enormous amounts of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, articles, magazines, other things on, on the internet. And so I was reading a ton, but I wasn't reading books. And so I had sort of a decade of not getting to read books before, uh, I discovered Bookshare, maybe, maybe, maybe more than a decade. Um, and now I'm catching up on on entertaining books, and and you know I'll read any kind of book, but um, you know I read I read nonfiction, I read serious literature, but you know for the most part, what I'm looking for is recommendations for just a book that is just so incredibly entertaining and pleasurable to read that like when you finish it, you just like want to want to start reading it right on over again, just a, an all time favorite. Uh, so if you've got any book or or books you want to recommend, or if not books, if there's music or other you know things that you love that you want to talk about, that's great too. Sure. I, uh, you know, you and I have a, I think a little similar love of science fiction. If I, if I read through oh, it, yeah. uh, I won't deny it. <laughs> and, uh, there's, there's a lot of things out there that I'd like to, unfortunately, some of them are frustrating to me because they're, they're still unfinished works. Uh, even the name of your podcast is perhaps an unfinished work, depending on how you want to look at the you, anthology you, yeah, that he did. And, and I, I think you may be the first person to, 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 to get the reference on the podcast that, that indeed that the, the title was in part a, a reference to Harlan Ellison's Dangerous Visions. That's right. Um, so yeah, his fourth, uh, his fourth one isn't, uh, Never, never quite out there for us. But I guess he he, pa- he passed away just uh, just last year. I guess right. Yeah, eighty four years old. Uh, yeah. So that said, I have a I have a friend that just uh, just did a sojourn into the sci fi fantasy world. That's been getting some some quality nominations, and I thought her books were great. She's an old LARP friend of mine, uh, Melissa Caruso. She wrote the the Tethered Mage and the Heir Apparent, and it's just fun reading. And frankly, oh, that that's great. That's where my uh, my world has been recently. So that's mm-hmm. uh, the Tethered Mage by Melissa Caruso. Is that it? There you go. All right, I'll look on Bookshare for that. One. That sounds that sounds like my kind of thing. And uh, 
I think uh, Patrick Rothfuss is probably my favorite of the most. Uh, He's so good. You know, it's funny. I, I uh, somebody recommended. I read. Um, Name of the I book. read the the first couple of books in the in the series, and, and then I'm like, oh man, I can't wait for the third one. And my friend was like, I don't think he's ever writing that third one. I'm like, what? No, he has to. I need that book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. So, do you, you, you got any insight for us? Have you been in touch with him? Do you know if he's working hard on it? <laughs> so he this year for the first time readdressed it. He is back on track for working towards it because for a long time he's like don't ask me and he was he was actually almost rude about it because he gets asked that's number one question of course um but he is finally in march this year came out and said hey i know i'm well overdue and i know how frustrating it's been for people but i'm finally at the point that i think i've got things together enough that i can do the polish i need to to put out the quality book that that i want yeah, exactly. I'm willing to wait to have it be the quality it ought to be. By the way, for, for listeners who who aren't familiar with Rothfuss, the, the first book is called The Name of the Wind, um, is absolutely one of the best speculative fiction uh, novels slash series. There's two so far in the series that I've ever read. Uh, what second one's called The Wise Man's Fear, right? Correct. And it's um, – I, I, I read the book and somebody asked me, and I like, as far as I can tell, here's what Rothfuss did. First, he wrote a like 3,000-page novel, and then he cut out every single thing that wasn't incredibly interesting and just left like a normal-length book where every single scene is great, right? Now, maybe I'm wrong, and he's just such a genius that he, can, he, he just only writes interesting scenes, but I feel like that would be inhuman. It's more realistic to me to think that he just wrote, wrote a gigantic amount and then said, let's just edit out everything that isn't, isn't awesome. I would say the only other book, and, and not everybody agrees with me on this, but the only other book that I feel the same way that like just every scene is great and is a joy. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll get to the first page of it on a reread and be like, oh, I love this scene is, uh, is Dune by Frank Herbert, where I feel like, again, somebody edited the crap out of that book and I thank them for it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great book. I agree with you on Dune as well. So it's, uh, it it's awesome. Time. I, uh, I, um, well, let's see. I, I would say the one that I'm frustrated, the other one besides Rothfuss that I'm frustrated by is, is a, is a series that is, I guess, finished. Um, I mean, I won't say that the author won't write more. Let's hope he does. But that Bookshare only has the first, uh, the first one of, which is, uh, the three body problem or, or three body as my Chinese friends call it by Xin Lu, uh, which is just an unbelievable, extraordinary tour de force. Um, uh, I won't even try to describe it. I'll just say that if a per- if you, have any interest in science fiction at all, uh, grab this book. It was translated uh, uh, in from the Chinese uh, by Ken Liu, but it's written so beautifully you would never know it was a translated book, except that the parts about China are so um, – they're written in such a way that, that it, it would be hard to imagine a person couldn't could have done it without you know intimate knowledge of of that world um and uh uh i gather there's there's i i think the third one maybe hasn't been translated yet the second one has definitely been translated but is not on bookshare as of like three weeks ago when i checked so bookshare folks if you're listening please get me that uh, second in the three body series <laughs> three body part got it Exactly. The three body, the three body problem, that title, of course, which refers to the famous, you know, uh, physics problem of, of, um, you know, where Newton solved the interaction of two uh, of two celestial bodies uh, being affected by gravity. Uh, but the, the three-body problem where you introduce, you know, say, Earth, Sun, and Moon turns out to be shockingly complicated. That the, 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 the mathematics goes uh, from, from, you know, sort of high school level to essentially impossible, uh, although there have been some recent apparently mathematical papers that, uh, that uh, you know, come close to, to solutions. Um, and uh, so that, that, that title is just catnip for me to 
to call call a book the three body problem and it turns out to be um uh i don't know as i said i can't even can't even describe it it's incredible um science fiction was banned in china for a long time as uh i guess i don't know i i'll I'll use the words wrong but let's say sort of counter-revolutionary you know as uh there there was uh, a view that that writing about the future in that way that i don't know whether there was a worry on the part of authorities that maybe um uh, attacks on the government could be hidden in science fictional prose, or there may have been other issues, but whatever. For, for a long time, nobody could write science fiction. And in recent years, uh, people have started to do it. And of course, there's just so much pent-up talent and great ideas uh, that, you know, it's no surprise that you'd have uh, some extraordinary uh, art coming out coming out of there. Um, well, let me let me follow up with uh, I. There, I have two other questions, and and uh, they're so unreasonably hard that I now let people pick if they want to answer one or the other or both or neither. Uh, typically, people pick one. So, one of the questions is. Um, if you have a viewpoint, if you have a belief that uh, is very unusual and that even among people you know who maybe generally share your worldview, people think, yeah, Randy's kind of crazy on that view. Uh, I like to hear unusual viewpoints. And so if, you've, if, you, if there's something you think that, that most people disagree with you about but you hold firm, I'd love to hear about that. That's one. And uh, option two is – any story you want to tell us that if I were a really good interviewer, I would have elicited from you by asking smarter questions. But because I don't have the skills to do that, <laughs> I'm just going to be lame and say, like, just tell me your best story. Tell me your funniest story. You know, if if you were meeting new people and you just really want them to think that you are a fascinating, entertaining individual, what's the, what's the story you bust out for that circumstance? So if uh, if you got anything on either of those, we'd love to hear. Well, look at the psychology you just threw at me. If I took options three, the se- or the second option there, um, that means I'm implying that you did a bad job interviewing. So uh, <laughs> boy, that's tough. I'll, uh, it's, it's, I'll- it's a given that I did a bad job interviewing, but you know, we all, we all muddle through as best we can. <laughs> so I'll start on the second one. The, the first question, actually, I guess it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the second question in your trio, um, which is to say, what do I believe that a lot of people think I'm crazy for? My wife often says it, but, uh, I believe that conflict isn't a negative thing, um, and I believe that we we need candid, honest approaches with people. That doesn't mean it's an excuse to be hurtful, but mm-hmm. I think that it's okay, and I will tell people anything and everything that is my truth to help move us in the directions that we need to be. I, I think that's an important thing. That's why you couldn't ask me a question I wasn't going to be comfortable answering. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I have somebody over and the truth is that I really need to get sleep, I will tell them that. I'm saying, you know, hey, I've had a great visit, but I really mm-hmm. need to get sleep. And I'm really sorry I have to ask you to leave. And my wife is horrified. But yeah. that's my truth. And I think it's okay if we're a little more honest with each other, even on the things that may not be things people want to hear, as long as we don't let that be the excuse for unkindness or cruelty. So, so, so it's so fascinating you mentioned this because I've been thinking a lot about this lately and the, the question of like – on the one hand, society has become so much kinder uh, over the course of time, right? There's a great book about this, Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature, I guess so. I, I mentioned it in uh, in book in the book review segment. But uh, one of the best nonfiction books I've ever read, Stephen Pinker, he's a Harvard professor, he's a linguist, but he's a polymath, and he wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature in which he kind of documents how much kinder, less violent, more responsible, and kind of better in every way society has, has gotten over the, over the centuries. 
case, um, you know, the, the, the basic fact is if you sort of, if you compare like, like, uh, you know, Italy in the 1300s to Italy today, the murder rate is down like 95% since then, you know, and people, people, if anything, guess that it would be higher, but instead it's that. So anyway, <coughs> people are far kinder. So, so that's wonderful. And I really enjoy it. And it seems, feels very natural to me to have that kindness. But I do occasionally wonder if we've pushed it so far, uh, that, that, there may be times when a little more conflict would be needed. And I was asking, I have a, I, I do a project, um, uh, called Excite uh, Ventures, where we we have a tiny venture capital fund that, and we invest in uh, blindness therapies and and cures and and you know vision uh, technology and so forth. And uh, and two of uh, two of my partners in that venture are um, are retinal surgeons. Uh, and I asked them, I said, you know, by reputation, surgeons can be you know pretty rough, right? There's there can be you know you watch the old medical shows, and there there could be quite a bit of sort of nastiness uh, in there. And I said must be, you know, in many ways, a more pleasant environment that we've gotten rid of some of that nastiness. Um, but that said, do you worry sometimes that people are too reluctant to speak up because they want to be nice? And they said, oh, yes, it's a big problem. I said, well, you know, give me an example. And one of the guys said, well, um, you know, like the, you, there will be times when there will be a doctor who has been a very fine surgeon, but now he's like reached a point in his career where he's just, you know, not not up to snuff anymore. And, um, you know, no one, no one wants to say anything in that circumstance, you know? And so then the person will, will keep operating. He said that that's the kind of thing where in the old days that had just been like, get out of here, old man, <laughs> you know, and that wasn't nice, but, um, you know, might have uh, led to some better patient outcomes. So it is, um, so I, I, I'm, you know, totally uh, open to your notion that, that uh, you know, maybe sometimes we have to be a little more conflictual, you know, again, and we don't need to be unkind about it the way people were in the old days, and I'm sure the way people still are sometimes, but, um, but it's very, very interesting insight. And I think when you bottle it, that you're still having the, the issues, right? It's still there. You just haven't expressed it. And somebody's going to pay the price. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd rather that we can discuss it and say, what's the right path? What's the best path there? It may not be the one I want. But at least we can have that discussion. And if we approach it right, conflict is, I mean, a story isn't good without conflict when you're reading. Mm -hmm. it's right. the, the, the key is how do you get to the resolution? It's funny, you know, I'll read novels and there will be that moment in the novel when something's going to happen and I'll be like, oh, no, I hope he escapes the bad guy. And then there'll be a part of me that thinks, yeah, but then there's no story. <laughs> he has to get captured in order for them to, you know, have the great escape sequence later. You know, yeah. like, well, well, why would I root for the thing that won't actually bring me entertainment? That's not helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's all fiction anyway. Um, very go. good. Very good. Any other any other stories you want to share with us, Randy? So you know what the uh, I think that we've got enough covered. There's plenty more stories yeah. in our life, but that's part of why it's a forward journey. I uh, yeah. I will say I saw something on your uh, on your blog that said you know for other sufferers of blindness, and some people do suffer from blindness or from vision loss or sight loss. Um, I'm just not a kindred spirit with you there. I don't suffer from it anymore. I experience mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah, I, oh, that's and, good. But I think it's okay well, yeah. to suffer from it. I yeah. just hope that people know that you don't have to. There is a way to, to suffer to change that. Oh, that's a great. That's a great point. Well, you know, look, having having uh, spoken to you, and I just appreciate so much you taking the time to do this. I actually know what your best story is, and I know why you can't tell it to us because it's because the I, next one. Because it, it's the next one, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so so much for being with us today, Randy. This is awesome. Thank you, Randy. Have a great day. All right. Bye.
You're listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired.